My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, Property Investory listeners. Tyrone Shum here. I want to tell you about another property podcast that I'm super excited about. It's called Think Big Property, where I have millions of questions about property development and my co-host, Nyong Nyon, has made millions of dollars from it. I think you'll really like it. So, I wanted to play another episode for you. You can binge all the rest of the episodes on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Here it is, another episode of Think Big Property. Rule number one is don't lose. This is the Think Big Property Podcast, where Nyang earns means from property development and Tyrone, that's me, has means of questions. In this episode, we're going to be talking about another buying strategy where we are diving into the topic of joint ventures and how working with other people can help us find the best properties. We also debate between buying land versus apartments, showing the pros and cons, plus much, much more. Understanding the different types of buying strategies are a fundamental aspect of property investing and developing. The option of using joint ventures is another way to buy property and how working with other people can help you leverage your time and resources. I remember earlier on in my career, I did various joint ventures where I contributed the financial resources or I found the financial resources. I'll give you an example where earlier on in my career, I got involved with a lady in North Queensland from a property space and she was finding deals and she was joint venturing with people where um, she'd go out and find blocks of townhouses and we would strata title. This is in Mackay, probably in early 2000. Um, Mackay's in, in North Queensland and um, mining town at this point. And so you know, we were buying, she was finding duplexes, blocks of five, blocks of six, and the prices back then were quite reasonable, you know, sub 300 grand, sub 500 grand, very, very affordable for multiple income properties. And so at that point in time, uh, the Brisbane market that I was involved in was pretty flat. Um, And so we're looking for other greener pastures. And so these opportunities came up and uh, yeah, Essentially, when you're looking for someone like that, you're looking for someone who's on the ground doing property full time uh, and they know an area very, very well. And so in this instance, she had focused on this town and prices were pretty generic uh, across the whole town. Each of the townhouses were roughly fifty to 70000 which was uh, very, very cheap relative to the rent. At the time, you know, the rent was probably closer to 10%, which was really cool. Um, so 
the properties might be 70,000 and the rent was you know, 140, 150,000. And uh, we're looking at uh, renovating them, strata tiling and selling them. So uh, that was really, that worked really well for a while until uh, at one stage you ran out of money and that became troublesome. But long story short was, yeah, she was finding the deals, running around, organizing the tradespeople, negotiating with the agents, negotiating with the contractors, organizing the sales. And I myself was organizing the finance. And, and at times, I contributed uh, the stamp duty deposits as well as the serviceability. Other times when I couldn't, when I ran out of those resources, I found other partners to be able to contribute that. And, and then I still got a profit share, albeit a smaller profit share. I think at one stage, I was getting a 25% profit share on a deal, but I didn't put any financial resources resources in. I was putting together the partners who had the finances as well as the partners doing the deal. So I I think there's so many ways to do that. You can meet those kind of people at seminars, workshops. Um, You can put it out there on um, Gumtree or even Facebook. I'm sure there's so many people who are looking for money partners, but you need to make sure that one, they know what they're doing and two, your money's protected. And we'll probably delve into another episode in the future about that in more and more detail, to sort of explaining that and even putting examples together. I think that's that's a really, really important topic to talk about because it's not something you just touch on and then, you know, that's it. It's actually quite a structured way. There's frameworks around it. And I know myself working within this um, realm as well, working with joint ventures, money partners and stuff like that, there are certain things that we've got to do to be able to form these relationships and then to be able to put that investment into the actual property because... Otherwise, um, yeah, you, you can go out blindly and just think, you know, it's easy just to find people, but it's actually not that easy. So, there's a lot of intricacies and so many different things to talk about on that side of things. You could do a one-day seminar just on, you know, that kind of arrangements and protecting the money and exit strategies and things that can go wrong and how to make sure you find the right person, isn't it? So, I know that, uh, yeah, it's just a big, big topic. And like you said, there's a lot of intricacies and you, you really just got to, you know, start one step at a time. Let's jump back to the beginning when we're talking about making sure that when you're buying, you're, you're buying well because you know, you've know got to make sure that you're buying on the market and maybe let's point out some of the reasons why because say for example, if the market changes, what are the some of the possible outcomes whether or not the market changes goes down or it goes up or remains flat? How can that actually help you or buffer and protect you you know, with your with the property that you've just purchased. Like I said at the beginning, you make your money when you buy. And like what Tyrone's talking about is the buffers. If you're able to buy at 10, 20, 30% under market value, it's absolutely insurance. And you know, after a while for me and focusing on buying right and buying at a discount, sometimes you forget the 10, 20, 30 reasons why you need to buy under market value. But you know, that, that's the thing in the last uh, 12, 24, 36 months when the market has corrected and um, come back down in certain cities as well. You know, That's where it just highlights is that you make your money when you buy and you, when you're buying under market value, that's where it's a big insurance policy to protect yourself against the market downfall. So if you bought it 20% under market value, and the market drops by 10%, you're still ahead. Warren Buffett um, often talks about rule number one is don't lose, right? Rule number one is don't lose. And if you've bought it at a 20% discount and the market comes back by 5 to 10%, you can still sell it. If you want to get out, if you're concerned that the market's going to go even further and drop further, you can get out and sell at a 15% discount or a 10% discount and cover your costs and make a small profit and move on. And sometimes you just want to get out to pay off that debt, reduce your exposure and you know, be able to play again, so to speak. So, And if you buy it under market value but the market goes up, 
that's an absolute bonus. That's happened to me many, many, many times because you really want to make the profit on the deal now. And that's one of the things that Kiyosaki talks about and teaches in his uh, trainings is that when you're wanting to buy a property, you want to make the profit up front. Oftentimes, a real estate agent will say, oh, it'll probably double, triple every 10 to 15 years, whatever it is. That is prospective profit and you cannot control that. It may or may not happen. And so when I'm buying a property, I want to have profit right now at the beginning of the transaction, lock it in so that because the rest of the profit may or may not happen. So the market may or may not go up um, at the moment after some of the people you know, drop their prices by 10, 15%. You know, they're very much licking their wounds and interest only going to principal interest. Some of them are seriously bleeding with a negative cash flow. So um, yeah, it's very, very painful if you get it wrong. And, and oftentimes, that's where you start off. You, you pay retail and you don't know what you're doing um, and the market goes down and you're going, geez, this game sucks. I think you've really, really highlighted the importance of actually buying, you know, buying really well. You know, this is where you make your money is when you buy. And the key component here is, and we've honed in this quite a lot over this episode, is making sure that you're buying under market value at wholesale, which we've covered in the previous episode. And I think this is the key component that everyone needs to just take away is when you're actually negotiating, find a motivated seller. And we've talked about the four Ds that actually go into this as well. But what I really want to also cover as well in, in this particular part is we're, you know, we've talked a lot about how to actually look at for motivated sellers, how to make sure that you buy on the value but what type, what type of property are we looking for to be able to create that and I know in many times you've talked about finding free blocks of land. Maybe if you want to share with the listeners exactly what that's all about and, and what you actually look for to be able to find that. This topic is so wide and so broad that we can start at so many different angles. I know when I started out, I was looking at cosmetic renovations and it's very much been very popularized by TV. Uh, if you go to Bunnings on a Saturday, you know, you'll see that Bunnings are absolutely smashed with DIY home renovators and I completely get it. It's very much an Australian cultural thing. You've got Queenslanders and older houses, 50, 60 years old where people can add value and they make, they make a quick buck. I, I think that's part of it as well. They like to add value and make a quick buck uh, or so to speak and, and add value that way. So when I started out, I think um, the first thing that people can look at is a cosmetic renovation where a house is potentially run down. I wouldn't say you know termite written, but you know, run down, and all it needs is a lick of paint, um, replace the kitchen, replace the bathroom, add a carport, lay some turf, put up a fence, and add value that way. So I think that's the first thing is looking for. Oftentimes, people may find properties with problems uh, that you may want to steer away from. I'll give you a couple examples of properties with problems. Some of them might be that they're next to a, an industrial estate where there's lots of noise and lots of smell or it might be on a main road or directly opposite a school where people don't necessarily want to live there or it's got undermining where the foundations are falling apart, the um, slab is cracked, the house is split and, and there's some real structural issues with that property. And so we call that properties with problems. You, you want to look for people with problems and you can add a cosmetic uh, add value to improve the value of that property. Just to elaborate on that, you said not to look for people, uh, look for properties with problems, but people with problems. What, what do you mean by that? Once again, we're coming back to making money when you buy, right? You're making money when you buy and looking for motivated sellers. And that's what I mean with people with problems, whether it's deceased estate, divorce, distance or debt, tying that back in. So you're looking for 
if the property has a problem, you want to be able to fix it. You don't want to buy properties that are sinking, um, undermined, that necessarily are very expensive or difficult to fix. <laughs> Having said that, I've got clients whose um, our main aim is to find houses with termites, but not active termites though, the ones that have been gone for decades, right? And we've got a client, we call him the termite whisperer. And uh, if he can hear the termites, he can hear the money. So, but yeah, but you're looking with properties that, that are structurally fine, that may be cosmetically really, really ugly. Or you can even add a, an extra bedroom internally with a couple of walls with not a lot of cost. Yeah. So, but coming back to it, yeah, you're looking for properties um, with small problems, but more so people with problems where you can negotiate and you can get uh, a really, really good discount on the deal. I've heard some really, really interesting stories and examples that you've been able to find property where you know at the front, there's just a house and then at the back, you get this block of land, like a free block of land. How, how do you go about finding these and maybe if you want to share some examples you've done in the past because that fascinates me. It's like you're able to buy a property, maybe I don't know, a thousand square meters and you've subdivided it in half and at the end of the day, once you've subdivided it and you sold the front part, for the same amount of what you purchased for but you actually get to keep that block at the back which potentially you could develop on down the track. It's it's an amazing idea to do that but what, what have you done and, and maybe share with us some examples that you've done with that. Free blocks of land, it's one of those things that is not a new concept whatsoever. It's been done for decades and decades and decades. I've just termed it so one in three or four words, I've summarized what the concept is and in essential terms, what it is, it's it's a property with an existing house and you might have a big backyard which you can subdivide off or the house is at the back and you've got a big front yard which you can subdivide off. So I found out that in the marketplace, when people were fighting over each other with property, I had to find a different way of finding deals that were in front of people's eyes, but they still could not see. I know that sounds funny. It was right in front of their eyes, but they still could not see. And so I had to look at things creatively from a lateral point of view. So one of the deals that I did previously was a 600 square meter block of dirt. And oftentimes in that particular area, let's say it's zoned for townhouses. Um, oftentimes what people would do with an existing house is they'd knock it down and build three townhouses on 600 square meters. And that was the typical pace or the typical method that people would do. And I would question that method and I would go, okay, if I do that, is it going to make money? And 99% of the time I was looking at those deals going, nah, there's no money in it. Generally, there's only money for the builder because they're making a builder's margin. There's no actually property development margin. So so I'd look at deals and I'd go, okay, how can I buy that same block of dirt and extract more value than what other people are doing? And I found, okay, if I don't knock down the house, if I keep the house at the front and I put two dwellings at the back, I'd still get three dwellings. Yes, the end value of the house at the front might be less because it might need renovation as opposed to uh, being brand new as a townhouse, but my acquisition cost would be less. I'd still be able to rent it out and there'd be a lot of pluses with that transaction. So my point is that in that struggle or in that challenge of finding a deal, I, I manufactured an opportunity called the free block of land where you keep the existing dwelling and you cut off the backyard or you put a granny flat in the backyard or put a duplex in the backyard. Um, an example of the one that I did uh, recently in the last uh, 12 months or so is it was a thousand square meters, big brick house and it was on a corner block. Wherever you can, corner blocks are great because you have corner blocks actually mean two street frontage. So you've got one street on one corner and the other street on the other side, right? So two street frontage 
And so this block was, I think, 50 meters by 20 meters. So one frontage was 50 meters and the other frontage was 20 meters, which was 1,000 square meters. So normally 1,000 square meters with um, no um, two-street frontage, you only have 20 meters frontage versus here, we had all up about 70 meters of frontage. What does that mean? What that meant was I was able to subdivide that block, not into two, not into four, but actually five blocks of land. Um, so we cut down um, the 1,062-odd square meter block. With that particular zoning, we we're able to cut the blocks down to 180 square meters, right? 180 square meters. So yeah, which is crazy. And and every time I do a seminar and I'll put my hand up and say, who thinks 180 square meters of block of land? Great. Who thinks I'm crazy? Great. Good. I'm still pushing the uh, pushing the envelope. Um, and that deal did very well. We made 200K profit in 12 months. Um, and yeah, that was a 22% yield deal. So but my point is that we didn't start there. You know, we started off with other types of free blocks of land. It's the filter. It's the seeing the things that other people don't see, keeping the house and using that frontage wherever you can. Um, 180 square meters is definitely um, challenging to sell. But because we knew what we're doing, we're testing this, testing that. By the time we finished the development, um, yeah, we had already sold the blocks of land. So we don't suggest that people do that outside the marketplace. Definitely test and measure. But that's very much uh, on the edge of experimentation. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into what a lot of people are trying to overcome. The biggest thing that I'm grappling with and mums and dads around the world and Australia as well, it's just affordability. We learn about some of the difficulties you can face when trying to sell land. Selling land, it is an art and a science and you've got to know how to do that. And I think that's where people fall down is they don't understand how to sell land. Nan explains the smartest way to incorporate passive income properties into your portfolio. I've seen so many times where people do the buy and hold strategy, they run out of capital and they're up to their eyeballs and they're negatively geared with the dream of creating passive income. So that's next and you're listening to the Think Big Property Podcast. Hey podcast listeners. We want to give you something extra special just for listening. When you head over to thinkbigproperty.com and subscribe, you'll receive a free chapter from Nung's book called Bankable. Inside, you'll learn about which development strategy is right for you, where you can find the best bargains, buy property at a discount and how do you get free blocks of land. Simply visit thinkbigproperty.com to get your free chapter. Continue on from our last example with 180 square meters. What can you actually put on that block? Because to me, that makes me think it's almost the size of a townhouse. It is. Actually, it is the size of a townhouse block. So when you go back to my previous example of 600 square meters and putting three townhouses on that, each block is around about 200 square meters for each dwelling. So you're absolutely right. When you have 180 square meters, the um, applicable or building envelope that you can put on that is generally around about a four bed, two bath, one car if you go two story. But if you go single story, you are very much reduced to a, a two story, one a two bed, sorry, two bed, one car. Um, building. So you have to generally go two-story. Think of it as a three-bed or a four-bed, two-story townhouse block. 
with the size of the block, there are other relaxations. What I mean by that is you can actually build to the boundary and you can build closer uh, to the back generally if you're able to get some other relaxations. But my point is because the block is quite small, uh, it allows you to build more on that block of land as well versus a 400 square meter block of land. You, you may only be able to build a 200 square meter footprint Whereas on a 180 square meter block of land, you can build uh, like an 80% footprint on that, which is like 150 odd square meters, um, you know, which is with a single story home is not that big. But when you go two story at 150 square meters, that's a 300 square meter home, which is quite significant on 180. It's all it's all house, no land. I was going to say exactly that. So it's like a freestanding house and you get lots of space top and bottom, but you got hardly any backyard then. You might be thinking, geez, who would want to live in something like that? And look, look the biggest thing that I'm grappling with and mums and dads around the world and Australia as well, it's just affordability. You know, affordability and they're busy. They don't have time to mow the lawn. They don't want to mow the lawn. They want to focus on what's important and, and that for them, for majority of the time is the dwelling, having enough rooms for their kids to grow up in, close proximity to schools and transport. So um, that's what we're finding. It's all actually all about affordability. So instead, they want the 400 square meter block. They want the 500 square meter block, but in terms of affordability, they can't afford it. They can't afford it. So if they get more bang for their buck and get a bigger building and less land, oftentimes if the location is good, close to a park, close to public transport, they actually don't mind. It's actually no different, like you said, to, to living in a townhouse except you have nobody corporate. And I was going to say that's an excellent, excellent idea, especially when it talks about affordability. I think we should probably unravel that a little bit more as an example in, a, in an episode in the future because it sounds fascinating. Even myself, I'm just like, how did you do that? There's a balance of uh, how did you do that and just, excuse my French, having the balls to do it and, and being able to push the envelope. But look, that that's what being a developer is about. You've got to test different opportunities, especially when things are getting more and more competitive, things are getting more and more difficult. So, in land versus apartments. I'll give you an example. Let's say you've got a thousand square meters in land. You've only got a thousand square meters. You can't manufacture any more land. Um, potentially, you can ma manufacture more blocks within that land. But with a thousand square meters, the only other way to produce more dwellings is go up. And, and that site itself had zoning to go three-story. But in that particular area, which is a low socioeconomic area, going up any more than two stories just would not stack. So me doing, let's say, five townhouses there versus me doing five blocks of land, I did the maths and it'd be a lot quicker just to do those five blocks of land, keep the existing house and make roughly the same amount of profit with less stress and less capital outlay. So uh, my point is that you know it's a balance between uh, being competitive and meeting the market. It's really fascinating because you just touched on a really, really good point there. You can actually generate the same kind of return or even a little bit more by actually doing land development and actually selling the blocks off and keeping the front compared to actually going all the way to actually develop the whole townhouse project because you know, there's a lot more time frames that's involved. If you're going to develop a whole project with a townhouses, you've got to go through that whole stage of getting architects to design it up, getting the builders in and all that kind of stuff and it can take up to anywhere between two to three years whereas... As you've just said, if you've actually subdivided that land and you've sold it off individually and you've also kept the front house as well for say passive income or so forth and that would have what taken 12 months as you said, gosh, <laughs> the time frame in that and you get the same on a return in a much shorter time frame seems to be a lot more logical sense. So why are people not doing that or developers doing more of that? We can look at the debate between land subdivision 
and uh, apartments and townhouses. So, do you want to go down that path? Let's sort of just give everybody a little taste of, of you know the overall concept, and then we'll have to put it into another episode because we're we're going to be finishing up pretty soon with this episode. And I think this would be a great opportunity down the track to actually open up for a new discussion between apartments versus townhouses and land <laughs> subdivisions. There's so much depth and so much information that we can cover. Uh, we we like to you know cover what's relevant, but at the same time, there's a lot of thinking behind why I do what I do. Um, don't get me wrong, in terms of townhouses and apartments, there's a lot of money to be made. Um, however, there are definitely some constraints inland as well as townhouses. So, But just a quick overall view, um, you know, I started off with my vision of wanting to become uh, an apartment developer. Uh, one of my mentors early in the day and still now he does apartments, that's his specialty. But I found that as I progressed along the journey, my preferences for risk, my preferences for timeframes, my preferences for um, profitability, I, I'd found that land was a lot more congruent with who I was and being able to get in and get out. Out and, and get paid. So, what Tyrone was alluding to before is, let's say you've got a thousand square meters and you're building five townhouses uh, versus just subdividing the blocks off. Those same five townhouses, there's additional cost to build those townhouses. Call it two fifty each. That's an extra one point two five million dollars versus with the land subdivision. You're going to have to do the civils anyway when you're doing the townhouses. Uh, there might be a little bit more because you've got to retain the existing house and redirect some traffic in terms of sewer and water but um, bigger picture is that yeah it's a lot faster to do um, and it's a lot more proficient because there's a lot less capital required and a lot less debt so in that instance you don't need that 1.25 million of construction costs so you're holding on to that property for at least six to eight months less because you're not building that building during that time. Not only that, it costs you a lot more to do building plans. It can cost 15, 20, 50,000, depending on how uh, expert the um, architect is and, and how ornate the drawings are and to what level, whether you're in, uh, close into town or, or outside doing cookie cutter uh, designs. But my point is that, yeah. With land subdivision, it's pretty much five rectangles, um, which any pretty much anyone can do. I reckon my daughter could do it with a bit of training. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's more so the thinking and understanding the town plan and, and the intellectual side of things. So long story short is, yeah, you can get in and get out a lot faster when you're doing land subdivision. Um, on the flip side, though, land is harder to sell versus townhouses because townhouses, when they're built, you can touch it, taste it, smell it, see where the kitchen is, the bathroom. Oh, the tiles look amazing. Um, whereas selling land, it is uh, an art and a science and you've got to know how to do that. And I think that's where people fall down is they don't understand how to sell land and because they don't know how to sell it, they just want to go to back, back to what's tried and true, which is townhouses or apartments. But yeah, in this current market, apartments are very, very hard to sell uh, off the plan. And, and essentially, if you can't get off the plan sales, you can't get financed. And if you can't get finance, you're stuck. This game's over. We'll definitely have to make sure we bring you back <laughs> on another topic to talk about this this one in more depth and also explain it and ravel it and talk about as well, you know, selling land as well. That'll be very, very interesting. Now, last thing I want to do cover off is passive income. People wonder, okay, if you're looking for motivated sellers and you're making sure that, um, you know, you're getting all those things in place and what we've talked about this whole thing, how can we actually generate passive income? And how does it actually fit into all this? Passive income is, is very, very critical. And when I started out doing property, I thought, you know, passive income is where you generally start. And the thing about passive income that I love is that it comes in 
week in, week out, month in, month out. And I've got dozens and dozens of properties that just get rental income all the time. So I love passive income properties. I've got one that I've owned since 2003 and just keeps renting it, albeit it's only 200 bucks a week. But it's proven to me that as long as the building stands, which I'm sure it'll stand for another 50 years, it's just a Queenslander, it'll stand, I'll still get 200 bucks a week. When you accumulate that over time, it's very, very, very powerful. So my point is that I think um, with all the activities that people do, passive income, I believe, is something that you accumulate along the way or you accumulate it towards the end. And re reason I say towards the end is oftentimes if you've got capital like a deposit and you've got serviceability, um, if you buy just passive income investments, let's say you buy 10 properties and get passive income properties right now, it's great, but then you get stuck. I've seen so many times where people do the buy and hold strategy, they run out of capital and they're up to their eyeballs and they're negatively geared with the dream of creating passive income. So. Passive income is where the rental income is more than the outgoing. So you call it positive cash flow, right? Positive cash flow. And that's what I intermingle or interchange with passive income. So I use the opportunity. So let's say to buy property under market value. If you're buying under market value, it means you're paying less for it anyway. You're having less debt, less interest, and more likely to have passive income. So I mix it up and I do a bit of buy and sell and a bit of buy and hold. And, and so let's say I'm doing a five lot subdivision. I might sell the four blocks of land and potentially keep the house to create that passive income and then the profit from the land, I can pump into the reducing the house debt and make it even more positively cash flowed. Really, really ties in really well together all back towards what we're talking about because we started talking about motivated sellers, we started talking about buying free blocks of land and now, you know, how to actually generate from that free box of land the passive income. So, this topic has just really rounded out very, very well and we've shared with you the audience a lot about the differences between the motivate sellers, the four D's as we've talked about. Um, you know, making sure that you buy your buy well. You know, that's where you make your money before you actually buy the land. So all these topics have just you know mingled in extremely well. So I think we've covered off everything that we wanted to today, and um, hopefully, you know, the listeners have really enjoyed that. Maybe to top it off, let's um, <clears throat> give everyone an assignment then to before we head off. I've been thinking about what assignment to give people on this particular episode. I reckon what you can do as part of this episode is go and visit um, three investment properties, right? Or three properties. I don't think we've given this assignment out before, but if people can just go out and go to three open homes this weekend, just go out and have a look at whatever it is that's near your area or what's relevant to you. So if you're looking at apartments, if you're looking at townhouses, if you're looking at houses, just go out and look at three open for inspections. Collect the business cards, have a chat to the real estate agent. I suggest go and have a chat to them and use the atomic model, right? A-T-O-M-I-C. Uh, if you listen to the earlier parts of the podcast, you remember what those key triggers are to ask those agents and, and start testing it and see what difference it makes when you have a structured conversation with a real estate agent. Um, they'll actually treat you differently. When you ask those structured questions, it makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. You may or you may not know what you're doing. It doesn't matter. But yeah, definitely ask them uh, those key questions and see what comes of it and see if they follow you up. Um, but build that database of real estate agents important to build that rapport uh, and keep looking, keep looking at houses, keep asking questions and, and building up your repertoire of information.
Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, we'll be diving into the ladder of complexity when it comes to property. It's just an organized way to think about property to make it easier for people to understand how strata tiling can help you sell. Strata tiling is a really good entry-level way to buy in bulk and, and sell retail. A common trend that you see happening more and more in modern property investing. Your splitters are quite popular these days simply because the amount of land that's available for these are a lot smaller. And that's next time on the Think Big Property Podcast. Witness history at Roland Garros where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.